Because I think people can look at a guy like you and be like, I'm just not creative. Or just, nope. I'm not creative. And I think that people think that it's some kind of unattainable, magical muse shows up at 1030 at night and does that. And it happens and it's exciting, but it's the result of what? It's an understanding about just simple, simple reality. Like a lot of people put Chris, a lot of ornaments on top of the idea of being creative as a career or a job. It's not something that just happens. Like, you know, yes, people will see me up on stage somewhere. If what you're not seeing is that when I was in high school, I wasn't the guy out, you know, I mean, I had friends, I wasn't a loner, but like I was the guy who, nope, guys can't make it. Sorry, got to practice six hours every night. And then all of a sudden, unexpectedly, my hands would start doing something else faster. I could crack through these levels. Best piece of advice I ever read in a book was Stephen King's book called On Writing. The advice that I saw was the same as in music where he said, amateurs talk about inspiration. Professionals put butt in seat. That means you show up every day, punch the clock, sit down, open the laptop, confront the blank page, and start working. This show is produced at Podcast Carry, a professional studio making podcasting simple and fun. Located in Vibe Coworking in Cary, North Carolina. Want to start a podcast to create great content for your business and establish yourself as a thought leader in your city? Go to podcastcarry.com, connect with your audience, grow your brand. Thank you for listening to the Guys Who Do Stuff podcast. Visit guyswhodostuff.com. You probably shouldn't Google that. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Guys Who Do Stuff. I'm Joe. I'm Josh. And this is the show where we help you get unstuck, tell a better story, and have a good answer to the question, what are you doing today? And today, our guest is Steve Earnhardt. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Joe. I'm excited to talk to you. Steve is a creative entrepreneur and just a prolific doer of stuff. And uh, <laughs> we got tons of stuff to talk about with Steve. And I, and I just want to start by giving you an opportunity just to kind of Tell us a little bit about you and your experience and what you've been up to. Well, currently I'm the music director at uh, Hope Community Church here in <laughs> here in Raleigh, and I do um and I do a lot of freelance bass playing and music production on the side, as well as some private teaching. Prior to moving here, in I moved to Raleigh in 2016. Prior to that, I'd lived in Los Angeles for 15 years, from 2001 to 2016, where I had done a lot of playing and touring and music production and comic book publishing. Yeah. Yes. Cool. I love how all over the board you are, but yet it all kind of fits under that creative discipline. Mm. Yeah. I mean, one thing kind of, a lot of this stuff is kind of interconnected. This second graphic novel I put out, it was called Dead Zep. It was sort of a sci-fi noir about a, a rock star who had been murdered, but who was somehow still out on tour. It turns out his record label had sort of reanimated him so they could keep making money <laughs> off of him. Yeah. Is this like, uh, this how you felt the industry was? Is this like a... <laughs> at that point, kind of, man. Because once you see behind the curtain, you know, and you get a look at what the Wizard of Oz looks like, it's kind of hard to put the blinders back on, you know? Yeah. Like, you go out there with these ideas about what the music industry is and when you're on the outside and you're on the road and you're playing the shows and the festivals and all this stuff and doing the radio appearances you have an idea about what it's going to be like, but then you start seeing the behind the scenes machinations of all of it and what goes into creating, if you will, yeah. a superstar. And it, it, it can be disillusioning if you let it be. Yeah. But the book was also a way for me to meld um, comics and music because it, it actually, every copy of this book, the hard copies of it came with a, with a, with a CD that was in the front nice. that had like faux blood splatter. And it was like the song, the artist in the book was recording when he was, when he was killed. So you could listen to the music and you could, if you listen to it closely, you could figure out what happened in the studio nice. and solve the mystery yourself. Like so. an interactive kind of a choose your own adventure mystery kind of thing. Exactly. You're way ahead of your time. Netflix is just starting this crap, Steve. <laughs> yeah. And now Michael Jackson's on tour and all these people like Tupac and right there are like on tour. And yeah, and what a, do you guys think hologram. about that? Like the 3D hologram thing. Yeah, James Brown's coming back. Elvis Presley. I think I like it, but I'm not certain. What do you think, Steve? 
I don't know, man. I mean, it's, I mean, I think it's a cool, I think it's a cool thing to expose like younger audiences to some of these great artists. But at the same time though, you do see somebody like, I think Prince had even said something. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something like, it was like, please God, don't ever let me be turned into like a hologram after I'm gone to perform live. Like he actually said something like that. He saw that coming. I could mm. see that. Like he seemed like a guy that could see stuff coming. Well, he, he <laughs> yeah. wa- well, he was, he had, he was one of the first people to kind of go online and sell direct to his audience from a yeah, website. I remember an early interview with him on Letterman and he was just basically just shattering other people. Like he's like, how have you been successful? And he was like, well, here's how I do it. And he was talking about how he records it. He owns the rights. And he's like, here's how other people do it. And it just made it look like other people were just making very poor life decisions. It does because <laughs> once you do sign those things in a lot of cases, like you sign your life away, it's just, he really had it figured out. He also had the interactive piece figured out too. He did a record called, um, it was called the gold experience. It's kind of hard to find. A lot of people call it the spiritual successor to purple rain. It was his most guitar rock, rock, sort of hmm. straight ahead record after that. And um, this this album, in between a lot of the songs, there were sort of these little vignettes of somebody typing on a keyboard, welcome to the love experience. And it would go in and it was sort of this, it was meant to evoke a virtual reality um, type experience. And this was in, gosh, I think this, this record came out early 90s, I think. Hmm. If I'm not mistaken, but it's just, it's, it's wild. So kind of rewinding back to you out in California, what was going on in your life that, what was, what was the decision-making factor? What were the, the ingredients going on that made you think, I want to pursue a life of being a creative? Well, it's, I don't think that, uh, it didn't necessarily sort of occur to me. It was just as long as I can remember, even when I was a little kid, I would be doing impressions um, at dinner tables. Like I was obsessed with like yeah. doing, can you in, do impressions? Oh yeah. Inspector Clouseau. I would do him, you know, like your fun is, you know, I'm here <laughs> that your fun, your what, sir? Your fun. I'm not here for fun. Not fun. Your fun. So it's just like, I was obsessed with like just entertaining people and getting a reaction out of them. I always was. And then I became, I started doing acting when I was really young and I was doing, um, I ended up in a couple of commercials um, in Indianapolis. So mm. with these small, you know, Indianapolis agency kind of things. Yeah. And then I found music and, um, that was sort of a way for me to play my way, I guess, out of, out of Indiana. Cause I, I, just, I had bigger things that I wanted to do. And, um, when I found, when I picked up a bass, I just, I fell in love with it and I started practicing it like four hours a day at least. Cause both my parents were classical violinists in the yeah. Indianapolis symphony orchestra. So they were like, listen, if you're serious about this, you're starting late. I didn't start until I was like 16 years old or 15 years old, I think. And they were like, you need to practice four to six hours a day, like minimum. That's what it's going to take. So I was like, okay. So I started practicing every day after school, I would come home every day. And you know, you get better really a lot faster at those, at that age, like for whatever it is you're doing. And, um, I got a scholarship to Berkeley that was, um, which was pretty rare at that point in time because if I didn't get a scholarship, I was going to go to a state school. Wait, did you get a basketball scholarship? Because you're pretty tall. <laughs> no, man. I'm, if you see me on the basketball court, you wouldn't be asking me that. <laughs> um, no, man. I don't have that. I don't have the sports. And, Ber- and Berkeley doesn't have a basketball team, I'm right? <laughs> no. So you got a scholarship for bass guitar? Like that's a yeah. specific thing? Okay. That's awesome. Yeah, well, it's, they, they, it's called a talent scholarship, but I think okay. that they kind of give it for sort of any instrument. Sure. They have specifically... They have a bass scholarship now. It's a memorial scholarship for, a, it's called the Wes Waymiller Memorial Scholarship. Wes was a bassist. He was the hot, um, he was like the hot bass player when I got to Berkeley. He was the dude at the school. The guy was just ridiculously good. Sweetheart of a guy too. Yeah. And he um, he graduated Berkeley and he ended up touring with, um, his big gig he got in LA was Duran Duran. He was out with them for a little while. Oh, cool. And um, before the Taylors came back in. So Wes was part of that band that sort of took over. And I think it was just Simon and, and Nick Rhodes and then a, a couple of, and Warren Cucurillo was playing guitar and then Wes and a guy named Joe Travers from Berkeley was playing drums. And those guys, um, and like one day Wes, Wes died very unexpectedly. So it just, it kind of devastated the Berkeley bass community. So they established a scholarship in his name. So now there is one specifically for bass, yeah. so, wow. which is cool. But I, I just got the general talent one. What do you think motivated you? Cause it is uncommon for somebody the age that you're describing to invest that kind of time and effort into a thing. 
and to be like, I'm going to practice four hours a day. I'm going to do anything for four hours a day. What, what do you think was driving you? You said like, I wanted to play my way out of Indiana. Was it just that, or was it something else? Well, I, I remember, I just remember sensing that like the life that I had at home was a little bit different, you know, like when I would go with my parents to like the rehearsals and I would hear this amazing music with this symphony in these, in these halls and, you know, they, they had gigs a lot of the time on holidays or they would be in studios and it wasn't weird to like go to a studio and hang out with them. And it wasn't weird to like go hang out backstage at symphony hall and the parties they had, there were always these interesting characters there. Right. You know what I mean? And I just remember thinking that musicians are some really interesting characters. Yeah. They're kind of quirky, you know, they're sort of like these misfits. I always sort of found, um, you know, they kind of don't, they're like those mutants that Hunter S. Thompson always <laughs> talked about, you know, like not fit for mass production. Was that, was <laughs> yeah. just, said something like that. A lot of them were like that. They were just really like, there's one guy, uh, uh, Gino was his name and he was a violinist, but like he was almost a shortstop on the Pittsburgh pirates. So it's like, you get these strange, <laughs> it is. Yeah. You get like these weird stories. You know, I, just, I love that. Like yeah. I'm going to be a shortstop for the pirates. If that doesn't work out, violin. <laughs> That's yeah, my right. plan. That's what I mean. It's so strange. You know, it's just such a strange thing. But he, um, but that's what it was. And I just sort of always felt this, this pull towards it. When I heard music, like it just sort of, I, uh, when I heard jazz for the first time, mm-hmm. like rock music was cool. I dug all that. But when I heard like jazz, like, like fusion stuff, the, the, the bass playing of like Jaco Pastorius, Weather Report, stuff like that. The funk of like James Brown and the Motown, the James Jameson bass line, something grabbed me inside and, and just it made me just think like, I want to do this. Like I need to do this. And there's something about that, that interactive element that happens when you're performing live, that trade off between people. That's just, um, did I just, I really feed off of that spiritually. So it's a really cool thing to be a part of. In those early days, the Berkeley days, or even before, um, were there any kind of key lessons that you picked up from mentors in your life that were foundational for you? Yeah. Um, in high school, I was really fortunate. I had a teacher um, in seventh and eighth grade named uh, Sandy Butts. B-U-T-Z. <laughs> yes. This is B. She was. <laughs> That's um, the worst. If you're a teacher and your last name is literally Butts. Butts. And you get the first name Sandy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I really? I didn't even put oh. that together. Sandy Butts. Oh, my God. That's even more yeah, tragic. She teaches uh, oceanology. and We love you, Sandy. <laughs> but there was her and then the choir teacher, Miss Patchen. And Miss Patchen had perfect pitch. And the two of them um when they i had this class every day it was called music careers and so went every period every every school day at the you end said of the high day, school high school there was a music career class i went to one of these giant indiana indianapolis powerhouse high schools really my graduating class was like 750 or something oh, okay. it was insane so i went like, to a very poor school in rural michigan <laughs> and they canceled our music program yeah. oh <laughs> they still did band it was all right but it's did you totally play? different we didn't have a no i didn't play in band my wife did oh uh, my daughter's currently in marching band and she is really digging it excellent yeah well, that's a great, that's a great, that, that stuff is great experiences for people. There was a kid from the marching band in my high school who actually went to Berkeley the year after me. Yeah. But um, yeah, he washed out after, I think it was the semester. That program was savage, man. When I was there, it had the highest dropout rate in the nation. I mean, that, wow. that, that program was a buzzsaw. I mean, if you got through that first year, that was one thing, but year two, like, whoo, that was just practice or get out. Wow. It was crazy. But anyway, but this, this class was called music careers. It ran for two periods. So it was seventh and eighth period of the day. So it closed out the day. I'd have two full hours and we had this giant room where we could set up and um, like record live instruments and live drums. And there were computers set up around the room and it would teach you music harmony and theory. Okay. And you would take tests on that and then you would have practice time. And then upstairs there was an isolation room with a vocal booth, not like, unlike where we're sitting right now in a, in a tracking room over here with an eight track reel to reel. And, um, we would go in there and we would learn how to record. We learn how to mic drums. We would learn how to record a bass, record a guitar, use distortion, use effects. It was really cool. That's awesome. Um, record vocals. And, um, it's really kind of funny actually, because last weekend, um, on Sunday, I went over to the Deepak to see uh, Harry Connick Jr.'s oh, show. Yeah. yeah. The Cole Porter show. They were demoing yeah. it here and working out the kinks on it. Um, and I got tickets because a friend of mine from that class who was a year behind me, this guy, Josh, he's, he was mixing it. He's the sound guy. Wow. And Josh was in that class with me. He's like this young dude. And he was a, um, he was, he played bass as well, but he was, he was one of these guys where he was able to sit down at that mixing board and, um, 
it all sort of made sense to him. It was mm. wild. Like we would sit there and we would record ourselves playing a rock song and we would sit there and mix it and, you know, yeah. oh, let's turn this knob and this and that. And it would sound like crap. And then Josh would just walk in, sit down and That's five crazy. minutes later, it would sound amazing. I think like, what a, are you doing? What do you think? I, this is what I believe about that stuff. Wild. I believe that like most people think that mixing sound is a process and it's a knowledge game, but I think it's an art form. Oh yeah. I, yeah. I think it has to be because yeah. how do you also you explain that? Like you can have a crappy mix and then somebody that knows what they're doing sits down and all of a sudden it's great. Yeah. And it's not expertise. I, I just can't think that it's just expertise. Well, that's, what's weird about it. He had no idea what he was doing. I mean, we're talking about it's a gut. 17 it's like it's year old. Yeah. yeah. This is a 17 year old <laughs> kid and he with no knowledge of any wow. of this. And just, he was sort of just able to hear it. Right. He was able to hear the whole thing and how these different frequencies interacted with each other. I think that's the thing. Like, like, I think that with graphic design too, like either you have an eye or you don't. Like you can't just teach it as a process. Like it's there or it's not. That's true. That, you know, it's funny. I've always thought that too, like about the creative stuff. Like I, I do believe you can develop to a Absolutely. certain point. You really I, can. But, I agree. But to, but to really hit that high, high, A, yeah. le a plus level, that good to great jump, you yeah. know, that they always talk about that, that, um, that it just, it, it takes something in eight. I've yeah. always found that man. Whether I think it, was, it has to be. Yeah. I think yeah. you can take a seven to a 10, but you can't yep. take like a two to a 10. I nope. just don't think it's, <laughs> I don't think it's there. Nope. Cause it, I think you're right. It's innate. It's, I think it's innate. I think it's passion. I think it's a combination of innate gifting, which is also usually tied to passion. And yeah. if they're not, cause you're not going to invest the time in something if you don't love it. Oh yeah. And it takes yeah. time to get that yeah. mastery level stuff down. Yeah. Oh, you know what? And anyway, just back to your point about mentors. Um, but Sandy was amazing. And so was Miss Patton because they basically, most of the time when you tell somebody like, Oh, Hey, I want to be a musician. A guidance counselor is going to be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you're not going to do that. Here's what you want to do. Here's what your test scores indicate. But passion and uh, Miss Patton and, and, uh, and Miss Blitz were like, okay, go full bore. Here's what you need to do. We need to work on theory. We need to do this. Right. We need to do that. And it was like, when I got to Berkeley, like, thanks to them, like all thanks to them and their guidance, I sat down, I took my entrance exam. I tested out of first year theory completely. I was in second year theory when I got there. I was in second year ear training. So none of this stuff that the usual freshman had to do, I was able to leap over that. You know, I mean, they were, don't, don't, <laughs> don't get, don't get it twisted. This isn't like a huge deal. There was a guy who used to play piano with who placed out of literally everything. So <laughs> he, he walked in and tested out of everything that was for like the first three years. And they just hand him a diploma. Well, here you go. Dude, there are some guys like Pat Metheny, when he auditioned for that, they offered for any audition for Berkeley, they, uh, to get in, they offered him a teaching position, <laughs> this audition apparently. <sighs> so some guys are, don't, it's not that big of a deal, but, but they, they were the ones. And it also proved to me like, Oh, okay. They were right. You know, like this process was right. Mm -hmm. Devote X amount of time to theory every week. Devote X amount of time to the mechanics yeah. of your hands. Devote X amount of time to tone. Devote X amount of time to creativity, you know, and you'd break up your practice routine yeah. in a very systematic way because that's what they would do in they school. They gave They'd you be, a process to follow. Totally. And it yeah. served me really well. It was great. Then the other mentor would be, would have been at Berkeley, would be uh, Danny Morris. He was a phenomenal bass instructor. What was great about him was Berkeley was a really heavy, um, it's a really heavy jazz program, which doesn't have a lot of application as far as money making in the real world. It doesn't. I mean, unless you're Herbie Hancock and you're playing the D-Pack, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like I learned that, I learned that pretty early on, um, but they, they really drive the program, at least when I was there, was towards that end, towards becoming an amazing jazz player. Mm -hmm. And I would, I would, uh, so I signed up for, lessons with the jazz instructors, you know, to get my hands going really fast and playing these really crazy lines and these out parts and everything like that. But it wasn't until my third year when I started gigging, I realized like this stuff has no use yeah. out there in the real world. I mean, none, you know, absolutely none. I can play a million notes a second and that, that doesn't help <laughs> it doesn't help create a pocket that people could dance to yeah. in a club or, you know, create a singable basic. I mean, it certainly helped with my musical language, but. So what do you think, like when uh, you, when you made that switch to yeah. gigging and it started being not about the theory, but about like, man, I can make a living doing this thing yeah. that I like. What do you think were some of the critical uh, skills that you had as a creative entrepreneur that kind of separated, that helped you get gigs, that helped you make money that kind of, 
I think you probably had a couple paths you could have gone down at that point, but one mm-hmm. of them could have been academic, which you just kind of, you just live in that world. Cause mm-hmm. that, I think every discipline has that version of the story. It's not really about the making of the money. It's about the craft and getting other people to do the craft. And so mm-hmm. you do the kind of obscure or esoteric stuff and get really good at it. But you took the different route and you're like, I'm going to make a living doing this. Well, so yeah. what do you think were some of those critical core things about you as a person that kind of separated you from the people that weren't getting picked up as gigging artists? I think a lot of it, I was really good at keeping my mouth shut and watching, you know, mm-hmm. and seeing like what was working relationship wise and what, what wasn't working. Like when I went out and I got hired, I was 19 years old. Right. And I'm out, I go out and I'm all of a sudden I'm out on the road with guys who not only this isn't their first roadie, they've been out for a long time. Like a lot, I think the youngest guy at that point was 27. Yeah. And you know, um, the other guys were approaching 30. So, I mean, you know, when you're 19, this looks like they're 80, you know? So I'm just like, what can I learn from these guys? And after about a year and a half of it, I realized, Oh, this is why they're not succeeding. You know, like I can learn, I can learn stuff about how to dial in a rig live. I can get my stage legs better. I can work on developing live tone. But these personality traits I saw in these guys are always screwing around on their mm. wives and girlfriends, you know, drinking too much, doing too many drugs. And I would just see the way that they would interact with other people in the business, you know, and, and I would see, I could step back and see the way these guys were seen, at least on the local scene. Yeah. And I kind of was like, Oh, these guys aren't going anywhere further than this. Like this mm-hmm. is it for this level of with this particular instrumentation. Now, a lot of those guys have gone on to huge things afterwards after they kind of made a lot of changes. But at that time, like what was available to in Boston, it was like there was a ceiling there and you just weren't getting past it. I mean, yeah. there were a few clubs you could play. Most of those have, are closed by now, you know, in this circuit that they were on. It was sort of the end of the alternative scene. It was right around the time um, Nirvana was really big that I was out playing. So it was a pretty heavy alternative scene. Yeah. So I was just able to kind of, I feel like I was able to see where it was going and sort of have the right expectations of it. You know, I knew that I knew that there was a place for me in the music industry if I conducted myself in like a certain way. Yeah. You know, if I was cool to people, if I was nice, if I was friendly, if I didn't have tantrums on stage, if I didn't, you know what I mean? Right. Go out and create this reputation of like, a, like create a toxic reputation. If I didn't behave in a way in public that got people talking about me. Yeah. You know that, I mean, music's, music industry is, it's tiny. I mean, yeah. it's absolutely tiny. It's amazing how everyone sort of knows each other. And I think that I was listening. I was thinking, I wonder if people might miss the point and just think that you're saying be professional. Yeah. But I think you're saying something different, which is like, there's an art to listening. Mm -hmm. That's not just something that makes successful musicians. It makes successful business owners. Like if you lead with listening, Mm -hmm. not only do you get the opportunity, like you said, to learn and be able to kind of sit back and piece stuff together and see patterns. Mm-hmm. but people like people that listen to them. It helps you build relationships, like meaningful relationships. And uh, yeah. So w- what point was there a point that you just switched from like live giving to studio? Was there always a balance of the two? No, not until I got to Los Angeles. When I was in Boston, it was all live playing game. Mm-hmm. What's no, the I- difference between studio and live? Very different. Like live, it's about, you have to, everything needs to be more pronounced. You know, everything needs to be more, um, there has to be an exclamation point at the end of everything when you're live Mm -hmm. or some sort of emotional, emotional roller coaster. You know, you need to engage people visually as well yeah, as with their ears, you know? So you need to try and hit all those points live. It needs to be an actual physical you know, emotional experience is what you want to create for people. Mm-hmm. When I got to Los Angeles, the guys I was staying with, um, like we we're talking about, they were doing pro tools when I first got there. So when I got there, this band I was supposed to be in didn't exist anymore. So I'm crashing on these guys couch and there were three of them in the house right now. All three of them were using pro tools. They were all right at the beginning of that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I was a bass player. So they were, they started sending me and having me play on everything that they were doing. So they were just like, Hey, you know, play on this track, play on this jingle, play on this mix, play on this remix, <laughs> do this, do that. And I was like, yeah, sure. So next thing I know, I'm out going, I'm out driving around LA going on run and gun sessions. And it was really funny because in Boston, the only recording experience I really had was playing, cutting records for bands, yeah. you know, that I was in, which is fine, but it's just, you learn that 
you learn that you have to be much more nuanced in your playing on studio because the tape tape catches everything. You know, it catches every breath we take. It catches yeah. every every plosive in the P's and the, you know, like it catches everything that you do and instruments are no different. It catches every sort of nuance in your playing. So if you're not playing with both precision, but also soul, that's a whole different skill set. you know, like yeah. it's very easy to go in there and hear the click, 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 bum, 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 bum. But you need to really dig into it and drive it on tape. That's a whole different skill set. You know, and it comes with experience, I think. But um, in LA though, like, well, actually, let me back up in Boston, you're recording to tape. So you have to be very intentional with what you play because the more you record over tape, the more the sound degrades. And it's just, mm. you need to be much more accurate. You need to be able to hit your takes one time. So I kind, think kind of like an actor in, in, a, in a film productions or a film rolling versus digital. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a perfect analogy because once I got out to LA, it didn't matter. I would just go in and I would play through three or four passes. They'd be like, Hey, can you play one busier? Sure. Bunch more notes, bo, 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 you know, and then here, play one with a bunch of fills, sure, but you know, and then play one really simple, okay, boom, 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 like, okay, good, thanks, send an invoice, all right, bye, and I'd be there, you know, and I'd be there, you wouldn't, you just had to start, you had to stop charging an hourly rate, you had to start charging by the track, you know, because all, like, I was there right when that shifted, so those guys, those guys were really instrumental in kind of getting me out there and hustling and um, just meeting the different producers because it was so easy to do it at that point. Like, and I wasn't going into recording studios. Like that's what was funny to me. Yeah. Like they'd be like, Hey, come to my here, send Steve over to my studio. Here's the address. And then I would go and it would just be like some house. And I'm like, oh, am I at the right place? <laughs> you know, what's going on here? You know, knock on the door. Oh yeah, come on in. Here we go. Here's my studio. And it's just like a laptop sitting on a desk in the living room. Yeah. It's wild, man. A dog running around, but it didn't matter. Yeah. You know, he's just, you didn't need isolation. You could just track whatever you wanted. Yeah. It's wild, man. Yeah. yeah it kind of like made it so that everybody could compete without the big studio. Like yeah. it's kind of like what happened with just computers in general. Like after the, after the, uh, like factorization, like you had to have a factory to compete. And then all of a sudden you got yeah. a laptop, you got that walking factory. You're like, I can do stuff. And right. It just, it just changed the game for a lot of people. Well, it was interesting. Yeah. It was wild, man. Because I remember in, um, Right around that time, a friend of mine was, he worked in the accounting department at Sony. And he, um, this guy said that him and his boss, they would go up to these boardroom meetings and they would talk about, this is during the, right around the time the music industry crashed in the mid 2000s. And these guys said they would go up into these offices and these boardroom meetings and they would be waving these spreadsheets of their returns around and being like, when Napster had hit and everybody was just stealing music, you know, and it didn't really matter. And they were like, we need to pivot now. And he said, and he would say the guys at the table, like, nah, we just need to ship more units, ship more units. And they were like, dude, they're like, units don't exist. Like the day that this stuff became tradable as a digital file, as ones and zeros, this, this ended. You just don't know it yet. It's catching up now, but it ended on that day. You wow. know? So, yeah. And that, you know, and obviously iTunes, Apple had them by the throat. That was why they were able to negotiate that these flat rates that they were able to do at the very beginning of this, mm-hmm. because Apple was like, okay, we can stop the bleed for you. Yeah. Sign here. <laughs> did did that oh, have anything to do wild. with you adding the discipline of like becoming uh getting involved in comics? It did comics. I had been reading comics my whole life. I, I love, love comics. Yeah. I love comic books, man. I always had, and I had read a book. I was reading a title called a hundred bullets and I was reading a lot of books too at the time, but they had a story arc called the counterfeit detective. It was about this kind of detective guy who wakes up with amnesia, has no idea who he is, and his head's wrapped in bandages. His name's Milo Garrett. And I'm like, that's awesome. So I, I read this story arc, and I loved it. And I was like, and I always had this, um, this like journal type thing that I kept, and I would draw comic characters, and I'd always loved Blade Runner. So I was like, why don't, why don't I just do a sci-fi noir? And it was the time that like a lot of independent publishers were kind of coming out with their own stuff. Mm-hmm. So around like dark horse was one of those. Is that that's right. There was dark horse image. I mean, there were a lot of them too. Like all the majors had like sort of a, a sub imprint, like DC had vertigo. Yeah. At the time that's what hundred bullets was on. They had one called wild storm. That was a little bit more of an adult themed, like superhero universe. They had stuff like the authority. And I think they had Wildcats on that too. Anyway, but there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of that stuff going around and yeah. there were just, there were all these writers that were doing a style of comics that I didn't think you could do. You know what I mean? Like yeah. crime noir. Oh, 
you can do that in a comic book. And I was, I just remember thinking to myself, I was out in LA, I'd been out there for a little while and just, I'd been making some money playing music, but it was like, I kind of saw the writing on the wall. I'm like, this isn't what it was, you know, like when I first got there, something else that had happened when, when I, when I first moved in there, one of the guys living in the house, um, I'm not going to name him, but all our friends know him as the mogul just because he was crazy. And like, acted like a record industry mogul everywhere we went. I mean, I, we can get into this if you want, but he was the one who, this guy, he hooked me up with a gentleman named Barry Squire. Now, Barry's a contractor. Basically, his thing was, and I might have this a little bit wrong, but I know Barry did A&R at Columbia Records for years, and he had come up touring through Steely Dan before he ended up at the desk. And his big thing was when Alanis Morissette came out, um, they were trying to assemble a band for her for the road. So Barry's like, oh, I'll find you some guys. So he went out and he put together this band for Lance Morissette. Well, this band became like the A standard for like what a touring band should look like. Mm. Bunch of really cool looking dudes who were amazing players. They had like Taylor Hawkins, who's in the Foo Fighters now. He was in that band. Chris Chaney, who plays, he plays bass with, uh, that was the bassist. He plays with uh, Jane's Addiction now. Okay. Got him Yogi Launch, plays, uh, played guitar. He Played with like Chris Cornell, the Wallflowers. I haven't played with him in a couple of gigs, uh, jazz gigs I did in Beverly Hills. Amazing player, great guy. But so Barry started getting all these calls like, oh, hey, I've got an artist. Can you put together a band like the one Alana said? So he became the go-to guy for that, you know, over the years leading up to when I got there. And this guy, Mark, had sent me on, um, he had just given Barry my number and also my phone started ringing. So I started going on these auditions for Barry. And I would get, you know, these opportunities to go play on a, two or three week tour or play on a showcase here or, you know, cover some rehearsals here and just kind of meet all the LA musicians. And it was really cool to be able to do that. But <laughs> what I noticed was when I first got to LA, one of the auditions I went on was for a band called abandoned pools. Right. And this was, um, was a guy named Tommy, I think his name was. And he was, uh, he was the, you guys remember a band called the eels? Mm -hmm. the 90s? They had a hit called Novocaine. It was like a big alt hit in the nineties. I think it was called, yeah, it's called Novocaine. And um, the other guy in the band had started his own band, Band and Pools, after the Eels had split up and he was looking for people. And I went in and I auditioned for him. And um, I knew that I nailed it. I knew I had that gig. And um, it was one of those things where you just knew it. And this thing paid 10 grand a week. Crazy, crazy money. And um, it was for like a, a tour of Japan opening up for Lenny Kravitz. It was a dope gig. And I got the call from Barry a couple of days later because I knew it. Like I vibed with the guys, like everything was perfect. And they were like, oh, the original bass player decided to come back. They were going to hire you. And I was like, ah, <sighs> but that's what, no, but like, that's what happens. I can tell you some comic book development stories that would be like, ah, <laughs> but they, um, <laughs> but, but all of a sudden, like after that, I started noticing that like the rates were kind of ticking down. You know what I mean? Mm. And all of a sudden the, the, these weekly retainer rates that you would hear about were going down to like four, 500 bucks a week. I mean, crazy low money. It was weird. And if you guys want to get a really good look at that, I cannot recommend enough that you check out the documentary Hired Guns. Hired Guns. Is that Hired, on Netflix? Yep. It's on Netflix. It tells you about that. And it's about guys who are playing. I knew, I knew some of them where you would be out there playing stadiums, literally stadiums, and you're getting paid 500 bucks a week. Wow. I mean, so the gigs, the size of the gigs didn't change, but the money nope. dropped astronomically. It did. And there was, I don't know, there were a lot of reasons for that. I think that what was happening was Musicians Institute, which is right in, right in Los Angeles. They were starting to farm out musicians from there. Yeah. Like much younger guys to go in and play because the fact of the matter was by this point in time, this is, we're talking late 2000s now, you've got a lot of the, these live acts. I mean, they're running tracks, you know? So it's like, you don't really have to be able to play mm. that. You don't have to be like a heavyweight player. You have to be functional. Sure. You have to look cool when you play, but like, does it really matter? Like if you, if you miss a chord, there's yeah. five other, <laughs> there's five yeah. other tracks of guitar playing to fill it out. <laughs> the sound guys got you down anyways. You know? Yeah. Right. So you know what it's like? It's like, if you've ever been to a wedding, right? You go to a wedding and a band is playing and the band takes a break and the DJ comes on and it sounds dope. And it sounds banging. And then all of a sudden the DJ goes off, the band comes back on and it's like, uh, wah, wah. like the sound <laughs> isn't as full. Like yeah. that's what you're competing with. So it's, um, I think that might've been part of it, but it just sort of, it just, I mean, it crashed and I started thinking to myself like, okay, I can do this. Um, 
And the other thing, the other thing too, was like, I was producing, I had produced some cues that ended up on a bunch of TV shows. So I started doing that. And that was something I've always done too. And the rates for yeah. that started going down too, because now networks were, they were buying monthly licensing. They're paying a monthly licensing charge to a library instead of a producer. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So instead of going to like a music supervisor would say, oh, hey, I know Steve up in Valencia, he can produce stuff that has like a Southern kind of funk vibe for whatever show it would be justified or something, you know, has like an edgy set kind of Southern sound. But now, but instead of doing that, the music supervisor would say, oh, hey, I've got it. Let's just do a licensing fee through Jingle Punks or set my buddy's company sound file and we'll get access to thousands of 30 second to minute and a half cues and then boom, you know, we'll just pick whatever we need. You know, we'll go into the angry section or whatever and just download. Yeah. Yeah. So the money went from the musicians to the the people who were owning the companies that were licensing the music. Right. And that's kind of what you see with Spotify now, you know, and it's like Spotify is, I mean, good luck to anybody out there today. Making I've money heard some astronomically that. sad stories about, and one of them was about Pharrell and happy that's the famous like he, one he showed like the check or something and what was it for it was like a thousand bucks right yeah it was chump abby chump change happy. from spotify yeah his check for happy the like crazy amounts of plays yeah. that was on yeah. heavy repeat everywhere for yeah. like what felt like six months yeah. straight oh everywhere and his royalty check was a thousand dollars wow yeah even if you hated pharrell with every fiber of your being <laughs> and you actively tried to avoid him, you wouldn't yeah. have been able to. Yeah. You would have heard that song mm -hmm. like yeah. a lot. Oh yeah, <laughs> you couldn't go anywhere. No, like you're just walking around Target. Yeah. Next thing you know, you're in your car. You're like happy, 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 <laughs> happy. What, what happened? Yeah, man. But that's but that was kind of what happened. So I started thinking to myself like, okay, as you're in music, you meet people who are in entertainment, and you start meeting people who are um, in film and who are in TV and who yeah. are in comics. And I had I had become friends with a bunch of people who were interested in comics and this message board I was a member of, and we would meet up for drinks a couple of times, you know, a couple of times a quarter, just go hang out. And then a lot of these guys were getting into TV and I was like, okay, this is kind of where the money is. So mm. I was like, maybe if I create a really cool comic book series, I could get it adapted as a TV show. That's cool. Right. And, um, sounds then, right. And then that went off, <laughs> then that went off to the races too. <laughs> with some other funny stories. So, so tell me about fun. your first, what was it like getting your first comic book published? What was the situation? The uh, man, I felt honestly, I felt more gratification out of that than I think any other creative endeavor I'd ever done, including records, producing a cue, seeing it on TV. I went to a premiere where one of my songs was the opening, ran over the whole opening credits, but it was a great, um, that was a great experience too. But, but there was just something about having a comic book in my hand that I had written, yeah. you know, and, and seen through. What was the Be name of your first one? Uh, the first book was called Hard Boiled Comics. It was a whole. It was a whole series. I put out eight issues of that, but I had to change the name to Hard Bullied Comics because there was a there was a famous book from Dark Horse that I believe it or not I'd never heard of called Hard Boiled. So the their lawyer sent me a cease and desist. They're like, "You better stop. You need to change your name." So I had to change it after the second issue. Mm. I should. It was a. Um, it was called Hard Bullied Comics featuring Billy Blackburn, Private Eye. Terrible title. I should have called it Blackburn PI. That's what I did. All the screw. That's what we had shaped. Well, I'll tell you about the, the TV development thing with that. But originally, like it was really, this was, again, this was mid 2000s when I decided to do this. And it was, um, there wasn't a lot of information out there. There was a, there's a website called Digital Webbing. Um, it's still around where you could go and you could post an ad like, uh, writer looking for artist. Here's what I'll pay for a page rate or I'll pay a, a rights split. And the artist like kind of helps me get a pitch together for free and try to sell it to a publisher. Okay. Like Robert Kirkman, the guy who does walking dead, he's probably the most successful independent comic book publisher in history by a mile. And Kirkman put out a bunch of stuff. He had a book called battle Pope. He had all kinds of stuff out before he really hit with walking dead. Another book he did called invincible guys. The guy's a creative geyser. He's insane. But what he did was with walking dead was he did a split where he hooked up with an artist and I don't, I don't believe he paid him a page rate, but he did a split where like, it's like, if this becomes a television program or a film, we split the rights 50, 50, that's kind of the range. Or what I did was I was like, I'm going to keep all my rights and I'm going to pay a page rate for my guys, mm -hmm. my artists. Right. So those are the two different ways you could do it. Me. I wanted to, I mean, I took my You're book. You're taking the Prince route. 
Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, the only place I took it to was Image because they let you keep all your rights if you get picked up by them. But okay. they didn't. Um, they didn't want the book, and I don't. I don't blame them. The first book was the first. Um, the first issue was okay. I fixed it for the trade. Kind of, I got the artwork redone because <laughs> I, I didn't like the artwork. I thought it was terrible. Sorry, I hired I hired the wrong guy. Um, but lesson learned. But I bought a book called um, DC Comics' Guide to Lettering and Coloring. Okay, and this book was this thing was just like the Rosetta Stone for how to how to make a comic book. So I went out and I got Adobe Illustrator and I learned how to letter comic books and create the sound effects and create the balloons and use yeah. the type, you know, use the right fonts and basically lay out a page, put bleeds on it, like all that stuff. I learned how to do all that design logos, make them float, like all kinds of fun stuff. It was, it was actually awesome. So this first issue, um, uh, I put it out and I put it in the way comics sell to stores is they all go into something called previews, which is a phone book sized catalog that goes to every comic book store in the nation. And three months before publication, comic book shop owners, they get it, they look at it and they go, oh, this looks good. Check, 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 check. And then three months later, they get the book. Problem is, your second issue will be solicited the next month, which is two months before the first issue comes out. So these people don't even, these comic book store owners don't even know if your first issue sold yet. And the problem with comic books is, unlike magazines, these are not, they're not returnable. So whatever you order, you're stuck with. Mm. And comic books today aren't selling what they used to in the 90s. Comic books in the 90s, holy cow, man. Those things, 80s and 90s. Yeah, that's all I want to spend my money on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, you want to see something crazy? Look up the sales numbers for Spawn number one. This is an independent comic I book. I remember Spawn. Yep, dude, that thing sold millions of copies. Comic book today, if they if it sells 50,000, it's considered a huge hit. Wow. Oh, wow. I think yeah. the industry is doing a very similar thing to what we were just talking about with the music industry right now. Because yeah. my daughter just paid for her first. She's very excited. She's seventh grade. I explained to her that she should be reading comic books. She didn't believe me for months because she loves the Marvel franchise. Yep. And she hates X-Men. So this is the problem with this younger generation. <laughs> the only X-Men they've been exposed to is the movie series that wasn't great. No, but the comic books of X-Men are fantastic in my opinion. And so I was trying to tell my daughter, like, I know the movie doesn't look interesting to you, but read the comics. And she still hasn't really picked it up, but she did decide to take her spending money and allowance and give the $10 a month through iTunes to Marvel Unlimited. Oh. And she has read virtually every line of Spider-Man in the last two months. Oh, wow. That's great. Like start to finish doing the whole series of every one of them. She's always reading on the yeah. iPad, checking out the comic books. That's so cool. Oh, man. But now it's like $10 a month. You can get access to, I think it's 200, 300,000 titles in the Marvel library for $10 a month. That's wow. Yeah, that's insane, man. Yeah, I remember when that came out, Marvel Unlimited. It was like Spotify or Apple Apple music, wow. you know, same kind of thing. You know, that was an interesting journey to digital when that happened to comics. Yeah. Cause then they became tradable, you know, movies are going to get their turn over the barrel next man. Cause oh. it's already there. You know, you can go online right now and just download anything that's in theaters. It's insane. Yeah. People with those Kindle, uh, the fire sticks, it's crazy. So it's, um, it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. But with, with comics, um, there wasn't a digital component to it when I first started. What was interesting was that anyway, but when this, when this comic book came out, like it sold pretty well for an independent comic book. I think I moved like 550 copies of the first issue and which is for an independent. That's really good. I had marketed this thing like crazy. I drip, I, my wife and I got in my, got in our car for our kids and we drove all the way up to San Francisco and hit every comic book shop we could back down to LA, dropping off preview copies. Please order my book, order my book. Here's the order code. I printed postcards and I sent them to every shop in the whole country yeah. and just said, here's a preview, order my book, please order my book. And it really paid off just wow. that hustle. Um, Cause I really wanted it, man. And, um, and then it, it sold really well. Second issue sold, sold, you know, there's, there's usually about a, I think it's like a, 20% drop off. And I was right on point with that. Second issue sold around 400, 450. Third issue, I think it was about 350. And then that leveled off right around there for the rest of them. But it was cool because the collected edition, when I put a graphic novel together, by my second issue, I had learned what not to do. I hired a better artist out of the Philippines. We had like really good shorthand. I loved this guy. And I had him redraw the first issue for the trade paperback for the graphic novel edition, the collected one. 
I got that book in the Barnes and Noble. So it was being sold in there. I got to see it in a Barnes and Noble store. I freaked out. Man. Wow. How, like, do you, ah. how do you link up with the graphic artists in the Philippines at that time? There not being so much internet activity. How did you? Digital webbing. It was digital webbing. I put up an ad and I said, I need an artist. You know, I need to find somebody. And this guy, uh, Rudolph Montemere, he responded to my ad with a page rate. And I was like, done. Cool. So the guy I'd used before his name, he, I don't want to say his name, but he was from, he was in India. He was based out of India. He was a good artist. He just wasn't right for what I was trying to do. Right like Rudolph had more of a cartoony, like noir vibe to him. He was killer, man. Right on. And actually, oh my gosh, I totally forgot about this. That's not entirely accurate. Before I got Rudolph, I had found another guy in Argentina um, whose name was Ulysses Carpintero. And Ulysses is amazing. <laughs> he is amazing. Probably one of the coolest noir artists I've ever seen. But... That dude works at like a snail's rate. So uh. I think he's faster now, but like I had hired him to do the second issue and he was so slow that I was like, all right, look, just finish it. I'll put that out as a variant. You're not doing any more books. Yeah. A variant is like for every, what I did to incentivize sales for the second issue is I said, for everybody, if for every store that orders 20 copies of Hard Bullied Number 2, I'll give you one copy of my Black is Noir variant, I called it. And it had totally different artwork, a different cover, yeah. different everything. So that incentivized people to order more, you know? Cool. And, um, and yeah, so it was off to the races from there. And then, the, then the, I did the conventions, and that's where you meet the agents. And then that's when things kind of move into television space and all that. Right? Stuff kind of starts developing. So when did you decide to start just doing written word stuff? I've always been a reader and I was, it kind of got to the point where like, I love writing and everything like that, but comic book overhead kind of became an issue. Mm. And I'm like, I didn't want to use free art and split rights. And it became a matter of, do I want to keep sinking a hundred bucks a page into this stuff? Because comic books, like independent comics shops have stopped ordering a lot of them. Only because by this point in time, like when I did it, shops would take chances on indies. But now, dude, unless it's one of the big, big stores, like. They don't have the margin to take chances. No, there's no margin. It's paper thin. So like, unless it's something, unless it's, it's something on a publisher, they're very not apt to take chances on books from like, you know, serious, hardcore, independent people. I mean, look, you can still put this stuff out digitally, but that overhead is still massive. Mm. You know, I mean, it's a huge, huge investment. And it was really strange because when we were leaving Los Angeles, um, and this is really weird, we were, I had always wanted to write a book before we had moved here. And I woke up one night, like around 10 o'clock, and I wrote three words on it, bad moon ride, right? Bad moon ride. And I sat down in a whole outline for an entire book, just boom, was out. It, I just, it, it literally wrote itself wow. proof of God. I, I mean, just the, the creativity, like I hadn't, I wasn't thinking about plotting. I wasn't even using a cerebral brain. I sat there and just sat there and it was like part one, part two, part three. And that outline is pretty accurate to how the finished book is coming together. Wow. It was weird, man. It was really weird. And as I sat down and I wrote these things, like the story is just kind of unspooling itself. That's one of the things wow. I wanted to actually ask you about. Um, you just kind of, the way that that just kind of happened. I have a theory and I think a lot of people share the theory that those moments don't, those, those muse type moments are actually a result of effort and discipline. hundred percent. And I don't believe that you can be creative on demand without having a process to become a creative person. Yep. Um, so my question for you is like, what do you think is the, the ingredients that you have been pouring into your life, the, the habits, the disciplines, maybe the daily rituals that mm -hmm. have made it so that you can, because I think people can look at a guy like you and be like, I'm just not creative. I'm, nope. just, I'm not creative. And I think that people think that it's some kind of unattainable, magical muse shows up at 1030 at night and does that. And it happens and it's exciting, but it's the result of what? It's an understanding about just simple simple reality. Like a lot of people put Chris, a lot of ornaments on top of the idea of being creative as a career or a job. It's not something that just happens. Like, you know, yes, people will see me up on stage somewhere. If I, I played the tin roof on Saturday night and it was this great show with Kalen and it's packed and boy, that looks like fun. What you're not seeing is that when I was in high school, 
I wasn't the guy out, you know, I mean, I had friends, I wasn't a loner, but like, I was the guy who, nope, guys can't make it. Sorry. Got to practice. Maybe when I'm done or the guy who at Berkeley, when I got done with dinner, I took my base. I went to back to my room. I took my base. I went to the practice room and I practiced for six hours every night. Cause it's like, you have to have an understanding of like, and then all of a sudden, unexpectedly, my hands would start doing something else mm. faster. I could crack through these levels. It's like the creative writing thing. The best piece of advice I ever read in a book was Stephen King's book called On Writing. It is essential if anybody wants to be a writer. You know, not that I have a clue about what it takes to be a real writer because I'm still finishing my book. But the advice that I saw was the same as in music where he said, amateurs talk about inspiration. Amateurs talk about waiting. I'm not inspired. Professionals put butt in seat. Yeah. That means you show up every day punch the clock, sit down, open the laptop, confront the blank page and start working. And if there's something's going to happen, it's, it's going to happen. And if it didn't happen that day, oh, well, trust the process and do it. Yeah. A lot of people have the patience to trust that process. Yeah. You know, you have to. There's another great book on that topic. Stephen Pressfield, War of Art. I, I love that book. I love that book. That's one of my favorites. What's the what's the term he uses for it? Is he does he use lizard brain? Is that him? No, 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 no. It's um, oh. there's a word he uses for being um, the things that are standing in your way. I wish I could remember what it was. I tore through that book, dude. I read it in like two nights. Yeah, yeah, it's killer. That's it's a great, great book. Yeah, I can't. Now I can't think of the word. It's gonna bug me. I'll, yeah. Maybe I'll remember and put it in the show notes if it's bothering anybody else. <laughs> yeah, no, it's driving me nuts because it's a, it's an iconic phrase from that book that like. Um, it's a really sort of iconic mindset piece that he has that, that he talks about. There's, there's a phrasing that he uses that, that really resonated with me. Have you read the book, Josh? No, I haven't. I know Joe has it and I've, it's on my joke and I borrow it list. It's on my list of books. I'm going to steal off of Joe's bookshelf. Next time <laughs> I go to your house. <laughs> the problem with hard copies, <laughs> they never come uh, back. I think I returned a book to Joe recently with no cover on it, but he's like, Oh, it's okay. It's not about the cover. I'm like, dang it. We moved. But, uh, anywho. <laughs> yeah man um yeah that's awesome i was i was kind of hoping that's what you were gonna say i think that that's the missing component for people like there's no shortcuts that's what it boils down to no it's hard work and that should be good news like if you're hearing that and you're thinking like oh crap now i gotta work hard no that means you get control over this thing mm -hmm. like you yeah. can you can do the thing yeah you got to put in your side of it well, there's so many voices in our heads when we endeavor in these directions because the the world telling us that hey that's not real work that's not gonna lead so so many people yeah. including myself have to deal, deal with that right? there's, a, there's a stigma i think people have towards creative like there's stereotypes and then there's the things that like there's stereotypes that are kind of like architectural kind of stereotypes like that oh, people yeah. have about creatives and one of the ones that i wish was a stereotype that's not like there, there's the pejorative ones that are like oh yeah they're gonna wear a scarf you know just the dumb stuff uh like the thing that people think about creatives uh, <laughs> But the ones that are good, like I wish the stereotype was like, that's a hardworking person. I always look at it like the, the Marlon, Marlon Brando effed me up, guys. I'm going to be honest because I was in in class in theater school and I, I got in, I was like, yeah, Marlon Brando. And then you got the James Dean and then you got the Paul Newman. And Paul Newman's famous for saying, I didn't have as much talent as some of these guys, but I squeezed the tube dry. Mm -hmm. And whereas Brando's hiding the script and his jackets and his hats on stage and reading it as he's on stage and I tried to go that route and it just, it was a bad combination. And I love the way you talk about, you know, early on you're seeing at 19 years old, these guys are, you know, their personal habits and you're like, wait a minute. And that clicked for you. Mm -hmm. So many, that's so, such a piece of wisdom to pass on to people who are now younger, right? Like just beware of your personal habits. Yeah. Where, how did your faith come into this? It, it, where did that the resistance come sorry the resistance. the resistance the resistance i had to google it it didn't ah. just come to me i've been over here googling and kind of not you. paying good so, attention to josh sorry so put that back in <laughs> put, that's okay put that back into context the resistance so is, that's what stephen uh, pressfield called the war of art like that's the battle every day it's the resistance it comes from within it comes from your own minds like you're talking about the world and from yourself and these things you've heard all your life or these ideas you have about being an artist that become internalized and these become part of your daily dialogue when you wake up in the morning this is what's playing in your head this resistance don't go to the gym don't 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 make food at home no don't do this keep doing what you've been doing keep doing what you've been doing you know it's like that famous saying goes if you want to piss people off 
change things. Wow. Nothing, nothing, <laughs> will, nothing will upset your subconscious more than shaking it up. Yeah, here's a great quote from Stephen Pressfield. Resistance is not a peripheral opponent. Resistance arises from within. It's self-generated, self-perpetuated. Resistance is the enemy within. Yes. Yep. That book is phenomenal. I'm going to reread it, man. That thing is... Yeah, just, it just made me want to reread it. Because it's a short read. Oh, yeah. It's a good read. It's what like one it's, of those books like like Art of War. And I think that was, his, that was his thing. Like he wanted it to be the thing you reread regularly. Yeah, totally. I think that's why he kind of ripped the name a little bit. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> I guess it's on Audible, right? I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that'll be a big hit on Audible for oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. So, um, all right. One more question for you, Steve, if you got yes. time. If you could borrow the DeLorean... Like Marty McFly. And you got 60 seconds to travel back to the moment where young Steve was deciding whether or not to be a creative entrepreneur. What piece of advice would you give to yourself? <laughs> Trust the process. That's good. Trust the process. Never wane in your dedication. Because there have been times where I've just been like, you know, Oh, this is crazy. I mean, like some of these comic book, some of this comic book development stuff, like it's fascinating to me because like I would be sitting like at the, at the height of this stuff, I was, my books were represented like for TV and film by William Morris Endeavor. Like I was signed to them. I'd go over there for meetings. It was crazy. And I would go out on these meetings with producers and everything like that. And I just, a lot of the time I didn't feel like I belonged there in some of these meetings. It's like, you got to trust that you belong in there. Trust the process. You're yeah. here for a reason. You know, it's fascinating because my stories aren't even that as heartbreaking as some of the ones I had heard. Like mine, I had come close to signing a few option deals. I had another one, you know, like it's just, I had a deal in front of me that an agent advised me to turn down, you know, and it, that turned out to be with the company that sort of went through the front door of Netflix. So, and I knew that it was the right thing to do, but I got this big war with the agent about it. It was mm -hmm. crazy. Um, and then there was another one, um, you know, just where like I had an option in front of me and the agent was like, nah, I don't sign it. And I should have just because I knew I just kind of should have gotten movement in it. But at the same time though, I had heard stories from people who had gotten things into development, shot pilots, gotten everything done. And then they went to the upfronts. Do you guys know what those are? I uh, know. That's where like, if you shoot a pilot of a TV show, the network will take all their TV shows to like New York and they'll do what are called upfronts and they'll show advertisers reps from advertising companies. Hey, here's this pilot. Here's this pilot. Here's this pilot. Here's this one. And based on the advertiser interest in these pilots, they will. So oftentimes the networks will decide whether or not they're going to air the shows. What a terrible decision-making factor. Like as somebody yeah. that loves TV, like why did the advertisers get to decide the shows we watch next fall? Yeah. That bums me out, but well, okay. I, I don't know if this, I don't know if those are still happening today because stuff. Everything's changed. Yeah. Oh yeah. Everything's changed. But this, this one lady, but that explains a lot of bad TV shows. It does. <laughs> it really oh yeah. Does. Like you think back to some network TV shows that should have never been made. Dude, still look at the network TV shows. You can tell these things are just made by committee. They're yeah. like check boxes, you know? It's yeah. ridiculous. I but saw a commercial for one that's starting up. It had Colby Smothers in it. And oh. uh, she's a PI, and it looks interesting. That's based on a comic book. Is it now? Stumptown's uh -huh. a comic book by Stumptown's Gray. Stumptown's a comic book. Yeah, by a guy All named, the good stuff's based on a comic book. Yeah. Dude, it is. Yeah. It's, I think it's by a guy named Greg Rucka. Yeah, he's a great writer, that guy. It was a great uh, ad for the show. It made me want to check it out. Yeah, I want to watch it, too. Yeah. yeah. Stumptown, yeah. Watch Stumptown. <laughs> Actually, no. Read the comic books. Read Support the comic, comic yeah. books. <laughs> Support comics. <laughs> so uh, when do you think this new book is going to come out that we can be looking for? I am about a third of the way through editing my first pass. I want to go through it at least one more time. So where are we? We're, right, we're coming up on Halloween. Probably next summer it'll be out. Okay. Next summer it'll be That's out. That's very exciting, man. I wish you all the success in the world. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today. It was awesome. Thanks so much really for having me, it. guys. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. We love making this stuff for you. You can help us out by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Get unstuck, tell a better story, and have a good answer to the question, what are you doing today? This episode of the Guys Who Do Stuff podcast is made possible by Forerunner Media. 
Forerunner Media is a creative agency helping you reach your strategic goals through content creation for social media and other platforms. Clients include Porsche USA, BMW Motorcycles, HH Hunt, the North Carolina Bankers Association, The Price Company, and Link Business, just to name a few. For every handful of satisfied paying customers, Forerunner Media does a project absolutely free for organizations who are doing good for their communities. Contact josh.manning at forerunner.media today for more information. Forerunner Media, your content creation partner. Relevant Media Solutions believes that marketing is storytelling. They help take business owners from feeling scared that their ineffective website is losing business, embarrassed of their online presence, and worry that their customers are not finding them, to business leaders with a useful website that grows their business and sees customers return. Let them help you tell your story. Visit RelevantMediaSolutions.com today.